following teaching is brought to you by Calvary Bible Church in Burbank, California. We trust that this recording will be a benefit to you and will be a challenge to your Christian faith and walk. For more information about Calvary Bible Church, see our website at calvarybiblechurch.org or call us at 818-556-4840. Singing. It's part of our series. Uh, We gather together. What's up on Sunday? One of the things that we do together is sing. Question is, why do we do that? How should we do that? And we're going to look at that. But before talking about that in particular, I want to clarify the difference or even um, the connection between singing and worship. For within modern Christianity, probably no word has suffered more abuse and misuse than the word worship. For when people talk about worshiping God today, they can mean a lot of different things. Some might mean singing. Some might be talking about a mystical experience or, or prayer or going to church or having their emotions stirred by some religious act. For many, worship is an event. It's an activity. It's a happening. It's an experience. And usually or especially involving music. Many songs written today, they speak of the experience they call worship as an end unto itself and as the height of religious experience that that I'm worshiping. Often it's portrayed or understood as an individual activity, something that I express, something that, that I experience on my own. But is that worship? When Jesus said to the woman at the well in John 4, God seeks worshipers, what was he talking about? Who was he talking about? He says those who worship him in spirit and in truth. But what did he mean by worship? Was he talking there only about singing? Was he speaking of an isolated religious experience? Some, when they explain worship, they look back to the root word in the Old English, worship, and they they say that it means to ascribe value or worth to God. And I think that's getting closer to the idea the biblical idea, the Hebrew and Greek words that are often translated worship in our English Bibles are words that have root meanings of to serve, to bow down, to do homage, to honor. These give us an even better picture of worship. And it's a better picture because they are describing a response. And that response, though, is it confined to an activity? Is it confined to a place? Is it primarily something I experience or something I do? Does it only happen at church? Or does it only happen when we sing? The Bible has a lot to say about worship. And it's a much broader and it's a far deeper idea than simply an event or an emotional experience or singing a song. The basic idea of biblical worship, and there's a lot of definitions out there, and there's a lot of good ones, a lot of them with with much detail. But I just, as I was thinking of praying about and studying it this week, I thought, basically the idea of worship, I think, it's simply at the heart this. It's the response, the wholehearted response of the redeemed to the Redeemer. That's really, in its essence, what worship is. And God has talked about how he wants that response to take place and and what that response is to look like. And again, I admit there are other more thorough and complete definitions, but I, I believe worship essentially is the committed, the consistent, the total response by the one redeemed to the Redeemer. I want to draw your attention first to a couple passages uh, that express this. Exodus 20 is the first one that comes to my mind. It is a passage that took place, God speaking to his people. And in Exodus 20, he gives what we now refer to as the Ten Commandments. And do you remember what event or series of events that 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 came before that, that came before Mount Sinai, that came before God declaring those Ten Commandments? What had happened? The exodus, the freedom, the deliverance from Egypt, right? From Pharaoh's oppression, from slavery. God had redeemed them. He had brought them out of that. And they were to be his people. And notice, that's what he starts with in Exodus 20 as he begins to speak to his people about these Ten Commandments. I am the Lord your God, he says, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. There he's referring to it. I'm your redeemer. I'm redeeming you. I delivered you. You shall have no other gods before me. Shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship 
them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And then after that, God gives several more commands, instructing them on how they are to live as a redeemed people. That is the context of the Ten Commandments. I have delivered you. This is how you are to live in light of that deliverance. And towards me who delivered you, the Redeemer, the one who redeemed you from slavery. And notice here that these commands, they focus on a way of life. They weren't speaking of specific meetings or ceremonies, things like that, though there was some instruction regarding those particulars later. But here, in this general sense, he he spoke to them in regards to how they are to live. It's a life centered on love for God and love for people, love for one another. In these commands, we see God wanted allegiance, devotion, loyalty, sacrifice, affection. In essence, he wanted their lives. And then after wandering through the wilderness 40 years, Deuteronomy 6, that well-known statement by Moses to God's people that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. That's a a life-consuming statement, isn't it? Love God with all your being. That's what God expects. And then a little bit later in Deuteronomy chapter 10, as Moses was reflecting back on Mount Sinai and the instruction that the people had received there from God, he says this in Deuteronomy 10, 12. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways and love him and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. See, these are all terms connected to worship, to keep the Lord's commandments and his statutes, which I'm commanding you today for your good. And then he repeats it. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and cling to him. You shall swear by his name. He is your praise and he is your God who has done these great and awesome things for you, which your eyes have seen. He goes on then to speak of God's uh, taking them out, delivering them from Egypt. He speaks of how God cared for them in the wilderness The context here of this response that God calls for is again in the context of the redeemed. This was the expectation that God, the Redeemer, had of those whom he had redeemed. And notice his words that he speaks in Deuteronomy 10, that the response is it's not defined by a weekly service or even a a daily sacrifice. Again, those were a part of it. But rather, it was this idea to fear the Lord, to walk in His ways, to love Him, to cling to Him, to serve Him with all your heart and with all your soul. Again, God expects a wholehearted response, a complete commitment of devotion, a moment-by-moment living for the Redeemer. That's exactly what we see in the New Testament. In fact, I can think of no better passage that explains this or shows this than Romans chapter 12. So please turn there to Romans 12. It's a familiar text. It's well known to many of us. And about as clearly as any other, this passage expresses this idea of a total response of the redeemed to the Redeemer. If you remember Romans, Romans is all about the gospel. In fact, that's how he begins the letter, speaking of the gospel of God concerning his son. And in the early chapters, he talks about the plight of sin and how we are all in sin, the great problem of sin. In fact, Romans 3.23, you guys know this verse, right? What, how's it go? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Do you know what he says right after that? Being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus. And then he speaks of that redemption in many different facets and ways in the subsequent chapters, talking about faith, talking about uh, sin and being released from its bondage, talking about the glorious forgiveness that we have, that we have in salvation. For you see, it is only because of Jesus that we sinners, and all of us are, right? Only because of Him that we can be justified. Only because of Him that we can have redemption. Only because of Him that the, the penalty of our sin, our rebellion against God, can be paid for by His death on the cross. It's only because of Jesus that our debt is paid for. It's only because of Him that you and I can be rescued from hell if we believe. It's only because of Him that we can be forgiven and justified. And that is what is expressed in these first 11 chapters in Romans. It's all about our salvation. It's all about the gospel. It's all about God's work in saving the lost and redeeming from sin 
But then in Romans 12, there comes a turning point, a transition. As Paul moves from that redemption to the response of the redeemed, notice in verse 1 of chapter 12, I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. That's really a a summary of all that he's been saying in the first 11 chapters, that Jesus' redeeming work, a work which none of us deserved, right? It was his mercy. He says, I urge you by the mercies of God to what? Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Living a holy sacrifice, excuse me, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And so in this transitional verse in the book of Romans, Paul is calling for a response, right? It's a response of the redeemed to the redeemer and what is the response that he describes here what is it it's a sacrifice right it's a sacrifice to him it's not an animal it's not an event it's not a religious ritual it's not a single act right what he's saying here is to sacrifice your life your life it's a lifestyle note the verbs here present to present conformed transform they're all in the present tense And that's emphasizing a point. It's emphasizing this, that our service, our sacrifice, this worship, it's continuous. It's ongoing. It's ever-present. Every circumstance, every situation, every day, every moment. It is a lifestyle. It's a lifestyle at all times. You and I are to present ourselves in service to God, to our Redeemer. Beloved, that's what it means to worship Christ. That's what it means. And we must never have the mindset of an event-oriented, a service-oriented Christianity. That it surrounds an activity. That living for Christ is confined to a certain weekly event. That it's confined even to a certain daily event or devotions or things like that. Or that it's only a religious happening. That it only takes place when my emotions are stirred or when music is played. That's not what defines What Paul's talking about here, what Moses talked about, what God talked about in worship. It is a wholehearted response of your life to the one who has given you eternal life. It's not just when we sing. In fact, singing doesn't produce worship. It's a product of worship. There's a difference. Worship isn't about performances. It is about living for Jesus all 168 hours of the week, not just the 30 or so minutes that we might sing together. And if that sacrifice, if that daily moment by moment worship is happening all throughout the week, it's it's like these instruments that have been playing individually. And when we gather together, it's these instruments being brought together that 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 brings about a symphony of praise. To God, a symphony expressed in fellowship, in prayer, in communion, in giving, in active listening to God's word and in singing. But if you have not been playing your instrument through the week, if you have not been living a life that is a sacrifice to God, then there's nothing that you bring to play when you come here. Singing, indeed, it has a special place in our corporate worship, isn't it? It's a precious gift, isn't it? A precious gift. It's been given to us as a means. A means of, of expressing a worshiping heart. Moses said in Deuteronomy 10 that He is your praise. And as we reflect on our Redeemer and, and what He has done and continues to do, praise is a be, befitting part of a life of worship. For millennia, that is what has happened among God's people. Singing has taken place whenever God's people gather together. So for the rest of our time this morning, I want us to take a, a topical look at corporate singing. We'll be looking at a few different passages, and I want to frame this discussion with two questions. The first question is, why do we sing together? Why do we sing when we gather? And the second question is, what should characterize our singing? Why sing? What should characterize that singing? And the first question, why do we sing? Why do we have music Why is singing a part of our time of corporate worship together? There are many different answers that people might give to that question. Some may say, well, it's tradition. That's just that's what you do when you go to church, to a church service. 
Others may say, well, it stirs my heart. It makes worship come alive for me. Some may say, well, singing is when I feel the presence of God. Some may say singing is what prepares me for the message. Others may say, though, singing is what gives time for people who are late to be able to come and listen to the sermon. (laughs) It's a filler. (laughs) But seriously, are, are these reasons that we see in Scripture, what reasons does God give for corporate singing? Glorifying Him at the end of the day, isn't it? In fact, that's one of the points. Whoever said that? Did you read my notes? Who said that? Yeah. We're going to look at six, six reasons this morning. The first reason is simply this. God commands it. God commands it, commands his people to sing. We see that throughout the scriptures, particularly in the Psalms. Psalm 33, 1, sing for joy to the Lord, O you righteous ones. Praise is becoming to the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with lyre. Sing praises, not as a lyre, this is L-Y-R-E. With the lyre, sing praises to him with a harp of ten strings. Psalm 149.1, praise the Lord, sing to the Lord a new song. And let his praise in the congregation of the godly ones. Let Israel be glad in his maker. Let the sons of Zion rejoice in their king. Psalm 95.1, oh come let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. There are many, many other examples. Not just in the Old Testament. Hebrews 13, 15 says, Through Christ, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. That sacrifice of praise we're called to give is is a declaration of gratitude to God in word and in song. God tells his people over and over and over, Whenever you gather together in my name, I want you to sing. I want you to sing to me. Second reason to sing is, as Brother Harry said, is God is glorified by it. God's glorified by it. When, when, when God's people gather together and when they declare who he is and what he has done and a desire to be committed to him, a praise to him, this honors God. Psalm 147.1 says, Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God, for praise is pleasant and becoming. Those words carry the idea that it is good, it is beautiful, it is appropriate, it is right, it is fitting because it it lifts up our Lord, gives him honor. Psalm 92, 1 declares, it is good to give thanks to the Lord and to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your loving kindness in the morning and your faithfulness by night with the ten stringed lute, with the harp, with resounding music upon the lyre. Revelation 15.3, the saints, they sing out a song that is called there the song of the Lamb. And it goes like this. They were singing, great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God, the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, O King of the nations. By the way, this is the song of the Lamb, a great verse on the deity of Christ. He's referred to here as Lord God Almighty. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all the nations will come and worship before you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. You see, when we sing of of who Christ is, when we cry out in song of what he has done, it's, it's like a megaphone to the world declaring God's glory. When we're singing, it's so much... I mean, think about that. When you see a group of people singing to something, that's more than just them speaking it. They're, they're engaged, fully engaged in what they're doing. And it brings God glory when we sing to Him. David said in Psalm sixty-nine, thirty, I will praise the name of God with song and shall magnify Him with thanksgiving. That word magnify has this idea of to exalt, to, to make great. And we don't make Him great in the sense... When we sing, but we magnify him in the sense that we show that he is great. We declare that greatness. And so we sing to God to glorify God. Third reason we sing is found in the very next verse from that psalm, Psalm 69. Right after David says that he will magnify the Lord in song, he then says this. The Lord will be pleased more than with an ox or a young bull. The third reason we sing Songs that magnify the Lord is, okay, and this is deep concept. Listen carefully. So a lot of syllables in this word, deep theological principle. We sing to magnify his name because, are you ready? He likes it. He likes it. It says here, 
David says he's pleased with. The Lord will be pleased. A moment ago, I quoted from Psalm 149, sing to the Lord a new song and his praise in the congregation of the godly ones. Well, right after that, the psalmist says, let them sing praises to him with timbrel and lyre for the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He delights in, he enjoys when we sing to him. I mean, think about that a minute. As amazing as it sounds, God delights in us, takes pleasure when we play music in his honor, when we sing to him songs that glorify and lift up his name and exalt him. And I don't know about you, but that encourages me to think that by the power of the spirit, I can be used to give God something he delights in. God himself sings. It's alluded to in Zephaniah 3.17 that he will rejoice over you with shouts of joy or it's a word that also could be translated singing. In Matthew 26.30 it says that Jesus sang with his disciples at Passover. God's enjoyment of song is seen seen not only by the fact that he sings but also that he composes. Do you realize God is a songwriter? Did you know that? He writes songs. And he writes songs, and this is the fourth reason, to be sung. We sing because God writes. Right after David described himself in 2 Samuel 23, 1, it's David's last poem, his last song in that that chapter. And he describes himself there as the sweet psalmist of Israel, the beautiful singer of Israel. And then he says right after that these words, The Spirit of the Lord spoke by me, and His word was on my tongue. You know what David recognized? Those psalms that he wrote that we have in the scripture, he recognized those weren't inspired from within himself. That it was the Lord who spoke them. Paul would use language such as they were God-breathed. Peter would say that David was carried along by the Holy Spirit. The songs that we have in the book of Psalms, ultimately the author of those is God, he wrote them. They're his poems. They're his songs. Largest book in the Bible is a book of songs. God's artistic skill is seen not only by his physical creation as we look at it, but it is also seen in the beauty of his songs. And he has written these songs to be sung. And he's written them to be sung by his people. That brings us to a fifth reason. We sing because that's what God's people do when they gather. They sing. In fact, Moses, people of Israel, they sang a song of deliverance in Exodus 15 after the chariots of Pharaoh got buried in the Red Sea. They together sang the song of praise. In Deuteronomy 32, we have the song of Moses, which he taught the people of Israel to sing and to reflect on and to meditate on and to teach the coming generations. King David We have him to credit for formalizing singing in temple worship. In fact, remember a few weeks ago we talked about that event. David had set up the tabernacle in Jerusalem and they were bringing the ark to Jerusalem. You remember what was happening surrounding that occurrence as the ark was being brought? Not the part about Uzzah. But there was singing happening, right? And music and praise. It was a processional. It was a ceremony. It was a parade. And from that point in time on, David had established the Levites, appointed them as musicians, as singers, as choir directors, in order to orchestrate song in temple worship, declarations of praise to God. He helped form more than half of the hymn book in the Psalms. 25 other Psalms were written by choir directors, the sons of Korah and Asaph. And from that moment on, worship and song was embedded in the very fiber when God's people gathered together. In fact, in 1 Chronicles 23.5, it says, David put together a group of musicians, 4,000 strong. That was quite a band. And that way there would always be those available to lead the people musically in praise to God. And as a result of all this, again, praise through song became embedded in the fiber of corporate worship among God's people. The songs of ascent, which are Psalms 120 to 134, they were sung by the people consistently during the three annual feasts as they would ascend up the hill into Jerusalem to the temple. 
the Hallel Psalms, 113 to 118, those were songs that were sung during the Passover. They were the ones that Jesus sang, that we read about in Matthew 26, or that we read about there. Paul speaks of corporate singing in 1 Corinthians 14, 15, in Ephesians 5, 18, in Colossians 3, 16. And the singing takes place whenever the saints are gathered together. In fact, continued on after the apostles. In the late 3rd century, Eusebius was reported to have said, the command to sing psalms in the name of the Lord was obeyed by everyone in every place, for the command to sing is in force in all the churches which exist among the nations. So Eusebius was saying, this is a practice. This is what we do when we gather together. One of the things is sing. We sing corporately because God's people have always sung when they gather in His name. There's a sixth reason that we sing. We find this one in Ephesians chapter 5. So please turn there. Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 18 and 19. Right before that, Paul had called people of God to walk in wisdom. And he says in verse 18, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation. But what? Remember how to finish that? But be filled by spirit, right? And he's saying here, rather than be under the influence of a substance, be yielded to a person. Submit yourself to the Spirit's work. The Spirit's work in your life through his word and through his people. And after that, he says this in verse 19, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. Notice he's telling us here what is being filled by the Spirit, what that produces. Notice the contrast. When, when with drunkenness, that produces dissipation, immoral, godly behavior. But being filled by the Spirit produces what? You see that? Verses 19 to 21, he gives five different things. The first three are all centered around one specific activity. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns, spiritual songs. Singing, making melody in your heart to the Lord. What are all those Involved with? What do they all have to do with one another? How are they connected? With singing. With singing. I want you to think about this a second. Realize what he's saying here. If if you're filled by the Holy Spirit, if you are submitted to his work in you, what is it you should expect as a result? What is it you should expect to see in your life? Singing, right? Singing is what Christians do. It's the natural response, the natural manifestation of the Spirit's control in your life. You don't have to force it. You don't have to fake it. You don't even have to be good at it. It doesn't have anything to do with ability or giftedness or comfort level with singing. If the Holy Spirit is at work in you, you will sing. You'll declare praise in song. Paul's saying that's a natural outpouring. The fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5 and singing to God here in Ephesians 5. Now, I'm not talking about the, you know, the ecstatic, the, the out of control, heightened emotional behavior that, that we've often seen. Many abuse their desire for an emotional high and they blame it on the work of the Spirit. I'm not talking about that. But if the Holy Spirit is at work in you, you will sing. You will sing. Brothers and sisters, we have to ask ourselves if we, if you, if we at Calvary Bible Church can be described as a spirit-filled church based on our singing, based on what we see there. Because we sing if God is present among us and if He is at work in us, we will sing. Amen? And this last point, I think, provides a segue into our second question this morning regarding corporate praise. Having talked about why we sing when we gather together, let's consider what should characterize that singing. What should it look like? How do we do that? And oftentimes when you talk about this, when Christians talk about you know singing, especially singing corporately and together, the discussion often goes along the lines of uh, what style of music is appropriate. Contemporary or traditional? Right? That's often what people talk about, or they talk about um, the instruments that are acceptable, right? Again, the organ, or drums, or piano, guitar, electric instruments. Are those okay to have? Often people talk about the posture. Can you lift your hands or not? Are you supposed to bow? Can you clap? Can you kneel? Can you tap your feet? 
Are any of those acceptable? Are any of those required? Can we close our eyes? And while these questions, they're, they're important questions, but they're not the most important. That's not where the conversation should really focus on. Again, these are, these are concerns, these are things to think about, but if these are the primary criteria that you use to determine, you know, if, if you come into a church and you look, and they're either raising their hands or they're not raising their hands, or, or the kinds of instruments that are being played, if you use those to evaluate whether or not it is biblical worship and song, you've totally missed the point. Totally missed it. I mean, do you think these are the things that God is most concerned about? Are these the things that are at the top of his list when we talk about God honoring praise? Again, they should be part of the conversation, but we first need to see what God mandates in Scripture regarding how we sing. And to do that, I want to focus on two passages in particular, Colossians 3.16 and Psalm 100. And in these two passages, we'll see four qualities of God honoring worship through song. In the first passage, Colossians 3.16, go ahead and turn there. That verse is actually the theme of our music ministry here at Calvary. And appropriately so. For in Colossians 3.16, Paul says this, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Now that verse should sound a little bit familiar, shouldn't it? We just read Ephesians 5.19 which talked about this. This had a similar idea. And in fact, they parallel one another except for how they begin. Ephesians 5.18 begins with be filled by the Spirit, but Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, which speaks to uh, their overlap and how they are parallel ideas. But notice here in Colossians 3.16, when the word of Christ lives in you, when you're meditating on it, when you're living it out, when you are seeking to understand and apply by the power of the Spirit, what will that produce? What will having his word richly dwell in you bring about? Again, singing, right? Song. You will sing. Notice here the focus is corporate singing that he talks about. Teaching one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And again, we can't miss the point. If you're filled by his spirit, if your spirit is at work, his spirit is at work in your life. If you... Have the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Then you will sing. You will sing. You won't be able to help it. Paul says here, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs that we are teaching, uh, instructing, warning one another with. Psalms here refers to the Old Testament songs. Psalms, excuse me. Hymns are songs of praise to Christ. 1 Timothy 3.16 and Colossians 1, 15 to 20 are thought to be examples of hymns that came about or passages that were used to form hymns in the early church. There are several others. Songs here comes from a word that we get ode from, O-D-E. It's a song that God's acts and what he has done are praised and glorified. And Paul notes here spiritual songs to clarify. It's not just any song, but a song that the Spirit filled. So by giving these three terms together, Paul's describing a range, a full range of music and of songs which are to be sung either directly from Scripture or connected to Scripture. First characteristic of corporate singing that we see here in Colossians 3.16 actually isn't within the verse itself. It is within the chapter. It is within the context of this verse. For Paul begins chapter 3 with this idea of having our mindset focused on Christ. He said, set your mind on the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. It's this idea of where, where am I looking at? What am I thinking about? What am I meditating on? Where is my focus? And then he says, if, if it is there, therefore, in response to that, and he talks about in verse 5, considering ourselves dead to immorality. And then in verse 8, about putting aside conflict. In verse 9, about not lying to one another. Verses 12 to 15, about putting on a heart of compassion, humility, gentleness, patience with one another, love, forgiveness, peace. Then in verse 17, he says, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. So you see the overall context here of this chapter? It's about having a focus on Christ, about pursuing Christ, about living a life of holiness. So in these verses, we have plopped right in there, Colossians 3.16, which talks about singing. 
And it's singing in the broader context of pursuing holiness. And in this we see the first principle of what should characterize our singing. Our singing to Christ, listen, our singing to Christ is intimately connected to our walk with Christ. We've heard this said many times, but it bears repeating. What you do on Sundays is not disconnected in any way from how you live the rest of your week, right? They're not two separate things. We must never think that being here this morning or participating in a singing, listening to a sermon, taking notes, prayer, fellowship, we must never think that because of that, because we've done that today, God has ignored everything else that happened this week that you did. You can be singing here with great passion and emotion and conviction. The tears could be flowing, weeping, singing with a loud voice. But if you've been looking at things this week that you shouldn't have looked at, or if you've been in an ongoing conflict with your spouse or your kids or fellow believer, if you've been repeatedly this week dishonest or deceptive, if you've been lashing out in anger all week or getting drunk or cheating your employer by not working hard, if you're engaged in any sin without repentance, without confession, if you're continuing on in that sin during the week, you're singing, no matter how passionate, no matter how full of emotion, that singing is worthless to God. You remember Amos, right? Way back when we looked at his message, his prophecy in the book of Amos. You know, Amos, he spoke to a people who thought themselves to be very religious. Remember, they were very consistent, very faithful in showing up in the pew on Sunday, actually Friday night, if you will. They were very faithful to bring their sacrifices, very faithful and consistent to sing. But all through the week... How they treated one another was horrible, despicable. And so God says to them in Amos 5.21, I hate, I reject your festivals, nor do I delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer up to me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. I will not even look at the peace offerings of your fatlings. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not even listen to the sound of your harps, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever flowing stream. You see what God's saying here? I don't I don't even look at these sacrifices. Turn off that noise. I don't want to hear any music, any singing until you fix what you do to one another during the week. Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness. I want to see that. And then your songs to me when you gather will be sweetness to my ears. But now they are noise. Clatter. The kind of singing God wants is is from a repentant heart. Yes, we do sin during the week. (laughs) But are we confessing that sin? Are we pursuing Christ's likeness, following his example? He walked by the Spirit. Are we seeking to do that? And addressing our sin, the temptations that we face. God desires us when we sing to have it be coming from a repentant heart. A heart focused on pursuing holiness. A heart that is following Christ. Old Testament scholar Daniel Block said, Truly worshipful music will be framed by truly worshipful living. Like the prophets, Paul's concern for right worship must be heard within the context of his concern for right living. That's the whole idea in Romans 12, that our lives be a living sacrifice. Back in Colossians 3.16, we see a second characteristic of our singing, and that is our singing is to be didactic. That is meaning it's to be instructive. It's to teach. Right? Notice here, Paul doesn't say singing to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, but he uses a different word. He says teaching and admonishing. Both of those have the idea of instruction. Instructing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And this tells us something, that the songs that that we sing are to affect what we think and what we think about. What we think about Christ's person, what we think about His work, what we think about how we should respond to that. 
how we should live our lives, how knowing those truths should impact us. When I was thinking about this, the song that kept popping in my head is A Mighty Fortress. I think that's a wonderful example of a song that teaches and admonishes. If you think about the second stanza, did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing? Would not, we're not the right man on our side. Help me out. The man of God's own choosing. Thus to ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sebaoth, Lord of the hosts, Lord of the armies, is his name. From age to age the same, and he must win the battle. This whole song focuses on our battle with the great enemy, Satan, and how we're to be engaged in that battle. The fact that God has sent a victor who has defeated the evil one. And it is him we need to rely on, not ourselves. If we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. But in Christ, the right man is on our side. The man God chose. This song is rich in doctrinal truths, not just for the sake of parroting some doctrine in a song, but to remind us of who God is, to remind us of Christ, to remind us of what He's done, to remind us of when we're in the heat of the battle, to rely on Him. And this song is so wonderfully has every element here, instruction, admonishment, encouragement, a focus on Christ, and a theme of praise. It's a wonderful work of music. And because songs are to be instructive, it goes without saying they need to be accurate, right? We need to be singing things that are true. Any worship to God, whether it is in prayer or sermons or how we live our lives or in singing, must be in the spirit of, must be done in spirit and truth, right? You guys are, you knew what I was trying to say. <laughs> because you see, the power of song, it's not in the melody, it's in the lyrics. The melody can help and can give it beauty, but the power is in the lyrics. The worship in singing is not produced by the tune, but by the truth. And just because a song may be done musically well, just because it, it may be very artistic and emotionally moving, that does not give it license to have bad theology. I remember several years ago, and I, I, I tried to find this song. I, I don't remember the name of it right now, but I, I remember reading the lyrics of a fairly popular praise song that was being used in many churches and in that song the writer referred to the holy spirit as it it now you see anything wrong with that it's just a little word it's two letters the rest of the song was actually you know was pretty good holy spirit was it now is that a true statement Holy Spirit is not an impersonal force. He's not an inanimate object. He's not a substance. Not at all. He's a person. A special person. He's a member of the Trinity. He is God. He's not an it. He's not a force. And in doing that, in that little one little word, they had introduced a massive, massive, colossal error. Heretical. Speaking of the nature of God as a thing instead of a person. That's a big deal. That's a big deal. What if our songs we sing refer to Jesus as it or her? Some do that. Well, it's just a little word. But we have this spirit of, of praise and exalting God. You know what? When God sees that and hears that, we have to be careful. We have to be careful that when we sing to God, it rightly represents him, that, that it is speaking of what is true of him. And this concern for accurate lyrics, it, it's led some in the church, and there's even a movement today that, that we must only sing psalms from the Bible. And they say that to sing anything else would be like offering a strange fire to the Lord, like Nadab and Abihu. And I understand the concern, and I appreciate the concern. The words of any song must, must match the truths of Scripture. But there's nothing wrong with taking the truths of Scripture and explaining them or illustrating them or applying them in a song. I mean, isn't that what a sermon is? It's not just reading the text. It is reading the text and 
hopefully, a preacher explaining the text and explaining it accurately and calling the hearers to apply it. Right? We talked about last week to be active listeners that apply the word. It's what a sermon does. And that's what a good biblical song can do, should do, must do. It's the same thing with prayer. Do we only pray what has been written? If so, we need to go talk with Jeff Learned. He prayed a little earlier, and and I don't remember a lot of words being exactly out of Scripture, but his prayer was consistent with Scripture, right? And that's, that's the critical point here. Our sermons, our prayers, our songs, what we say must be consistent with God's Word. But probably my main concern about only singing psalms is this. If we did that, how often would the name of Jesus be mentioned? Now, there are many psalms that speak of the Messiah and that anticipate His coming. But they don't give us the full revelation of Jesus Christ. And that's what we need to be singing about. That's who we need to be singing to. Is all that He has said and done. We need to sing about that. So from Colossians 3, we've seen two things. One, that singing must be done as as part of pursuing a holy life. And secondly, that singing must be in truth, must be instructive. I want you to turn over to Psalm 100, which is where we'll close our time this morning. Psalm 100, we'll look at two more characteristics. Again, this psalm is described by the psalmist as a psalm for thanksgiving. It's the only psalm with that title. And it was a descriptive of or intended to give instruction to those who were coming to temple worship to worship the Lord and sacrifice and song and, and hearing his word. But primarily in coming to offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving, a thank offering. And this is what the psalmist says in Psalm 100. A psalm for thanksgiving. Shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful singing. Know that the Lord himself is God. It is he who has made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name for the Lord is good. And his loving kindness is everlasting and his faithfulness to all generations. See a focus here? Any kind of theme jump out at you from this psalm? (laughs) Right? What's it all surrounding? What's it about? It's clearly a praise to God, right? Especially in song. And what is the tone? What's the tone of this psalm? You sure? You caught that, huh? Yeah, right? Shout joyfully. Serve with gladness. Come before him with joyful singing. Enter his gates with thanksgiving. And here we see a third characteristic of biblical singing, and that is it must be full of joy. It must be exuberant. As Spurgeon said, our happy God should be worshipped by happy people. And I think you'll find no better picture anywhere of the response to the redeemed, of the redeemed to the Redeemer in song than here in Psalm 100. All these characteristics of joyful expression of praise and song... My question is, does this describe us? Does this describe you? Could your singing be characterized as full of joy? Or is it dutiful or half-hearted? Perhaps even non-existent? We really need to ask ourselves those questions. And I understand that how that joy is expressed, and we all have certain personalities and things like that. It won't be exactly the same. Do you guys remember Jay Underwood up here in the choir? My first visit here to Calvary. Here's a guy, he's usually sat right about here, and he's like, he just can't hold himself. But you know, it's like, I, that guy was enjoying singing to the Lord. Such an encouragement. And we, we should really ask ourselves, you know, think about this. What if someone, maybe we have some today, folks visiting this church, or maybe someone who doesn't know the Lord, and he, he or she comes in and observes our singing. What would that person think? What would that person think about God because of how and what we're singing? What would that person think about what you thought about God by how you sing? Would would that visitor be attracted to Christ because of what we sing about him and how we sing to him? 
We can't miss the point of the psalm here. God wants joyful singing. Psalm 71 verse 23 says, My lips will shout for joy when I sing praises to you and my soul which you have redeemed. There we have again the response of the redeemed to the redeemer and in this case in song. And I mean, think about it, you know, as we sing to our great Savior, as we sing of his sacrifice, as we sing of the cross, as we sing of the marvelous attributes of Christ, as we think about and reflect on our desperate condition, how lost we were, I think of amazing grace, right? How sweet the sound to save a great guy like me. (laughs) Wretch probably fits better, doesn't it? Right? As we sing these things, we're reminded of these things. We're reminded of the amazing gift of Christ's forgiveness, of his grace, of his kindness, of his mercy. As we think about an eternal relationship with him that he has freely given us if we believe and trust in him and his work on the cross for us. As we think about these things, how can we not sing with joy? How can we not be overflowing with gratitude? How could we not sing with excitement, with energy? And I understand for some of us, we're kind of on the other side of the, the mountaintop there. Our energy level may not be like it used to be. But whatever energy you have, God understands. But use it to sing for his glory. But Tim, it's been, it's been a rough week. I've had this trial in my life for months and months. I just don't feel like singing with joy today. Well, I get that. I've been there. And my response to that would be, what better time is there to reflect on your Redeemer? What better time to be reminded of His grace and His mercy, who He is and what He's done? What better time to have others around you, helping you? This is the teaching and admonishing part. Helping you to direct your attention where it needs to be. It's not to ignore your problems and what's happening, but to understand who is there in the midst of them and who will carry you through them because of what he has demonstrated in his life. Singing is such an effective way to do that. In fact, again, my my mind goes back to Psalm 13. When David was in deep discouragement and doubt and struggling, questioning where God is, does he even see, does he even care? And in the midst of that, David ends that psalm with these words. But I've trusted in your loving kindness. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. Redeemer, I will sing to the Lord. He understood. And that, beloved, is that is the response of the redeemed to the Redeemer. Because singing, biblical singing, to God, about God, for God, brings life into focus. Reminds us of whom we serve. It reminds us that He is our joy and our comfort. I think of uh, our brothers, Paul and Silas, beaten, persecuted, thrown in jail, sitting there in a jail cell, probably not feeling that all that great. You know, when, when they got beatings, I mean, they got beatings. And there they are, chained in prison, and prisons back in where He was were not the same as we see here today. Do you remember what our brothers were doing there in that cell? It says they were praying and singing praises to the Lord. And I believe that that had an impact on the man who was out in front of that cell. Right? What did the jailer say? When God broke open the doors, he's going to kill himself. Paul said, no, we're all here. And then the jailer said, that's great. Thanks. Thanks, guys. Can you get back in? Lock yourselves back up. Remember what he said? Sirs, what must I do to be saved? I want what you have. He was observing their testimony. And brothers and sisters, when you express joyful praise to God, even in the midst of struggle and trial, don't underestimate the impact and the testimony that can have. Now we see from Psalm 100 that our corporate singing must be exuberant, At the same time, it also must be reverent. In verse 3 of Psalm 100, it says, Know that the Lord himself is God. It is he who made us, not we ourselves. 
Then every line of this psalm has its God as its focus. You see that there? Shout joyfully to the Lord. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful singing. Know that the Lord himself is God. It is he who made us. We are his people and his sheep. His gates we enter. His courts. Give thanks to him. Bless his name for the Lord is good. His loving kindness is everlasting. Every single line is focused on God because at the end of the day, praise and praise through song is all about us. Right? It's all about God. He's the audience, right? He's the audience. And so our praise must be reverent. It must honor him. It must exalt Christ. We've talked about that. It must glorify Him. And that exalting, that honoring, that reverence will be reflected in whether or not you're living for Christ during the week. It'll be reflected on whether the lyrics, the song that you are singing are accurate. It'll be reflected in whether God is the focus of your singing or you are. It'll be reflected as you sing with genuine joy to Him. These are the things that are to be the focus of our singing together. The style of music, whether we raise our hands or not, whether you clap, whether you have drums or electric guitar or tuba. There's nothing wrong with any of that necessarily inherently. In fact, you know what? Let me just say it. I would encourage you. Lift your hands. Close your eyes. Clap your hands Sway is an expression of joyful singing to the Lord. But remember this. Do it as part of our corporate singing. Because remember, just like we talked about last week, we listen to a sermon as a community. We sing here together as a community. And so don't do anything that would be an unnecessary distraction to a brother or a sister. But if you want to raise your hands as an expression of praise, as an expression of submission, and that was the picture in the Old Testament... As a sacrifice was was offered, the hands would be lifted as a Lord, please accept a sacrifice. And then that would be immediately followed by bowing to the ground. If you want to do that, it's fine. Just be careful if you bow, you don't hit your head on the pew in front of you. But if if this is an expression of, of praise to the Lord, of submission to him, of a desire to follow him, of glorying in who he is, then raise your hands. There's no rule here that says you can't do that. Again, don't be distraction don't undermine our brothers and sisters here and how you do that but if god is worthy in raising your hands or clapping together or singing with a loud voice as god calls us to do all of these things can be honoring to him amen but at the you know at the end of the day our corporate worship in song it, again it's so much more than just posture or style The more important concerns, the most important concern is, does it exalt Christ or self? Does it focus on our emotions or on what Jesus has done? Is it about me or about him? If it's about Christ, then it will be reverent. It will be holy. It will be accurate. It will be full of joy. That's the picture that we see in heaven's throne room in Revelation chapter 5. I want to read a few verses from it and maybe you can close your eyes as I read just so you can picture this scene that John describes. Revelation 5.8 says, When he, as the Lamb, had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, having each one a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign upon the earth. Then John says, I looked around and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And the number of them was myriads upon myriads, thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them I heard saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing 
and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. Four living creatures kept saying amen and the elders fell down and worshiped. Oh Lord, may that characterize the praise that we offer to you. For indeed, Jesus, you are worthy. You are worthy not only of our singing, you are worthy of our entire lives. You are worthy of our gratitude. Lord, you're worthy of our honor, our obedience. You are worthy of it all. We thank you, Jesus. We thank you for the songs that you have given. We thank you for the psalms and the many hymns throughout your word. We thank you for this song that was sung in Revelation 5 and the many others we see, see in Revelation. How they direct us and focus us. We thank you for the many wonderful hymns you have given us through the history from your people. Hymns that we have today, songs that we have today, some even being written today, Lord, that direct us in a God-honoring way to sing of what you have done and who you are. Lord, move in us as a church, move in us as a people to be skillful worshipers in song, to be those dedicated to sing to you from a repentant heart. Lord, singing to you accurately, singing to you truth, Lord, singing with joy, singing with gratitude. Let that be us, Father, please. Please work in us so that Christ would be lifted up and exalted so that the nations would see him and desire to know him. We pray this in his name. Amen.